I want to welcome you here. Uh, if, if this happens to be your, uh, your, first, uh, your first Sunday with us, or maybe your first Sunday in a long time, my name's Patrick. I'm the interim pastor. It's my privilege uh, to be the interim pastor here at Fort Caroline. I've uh, been here for roughly about six months now, and, uh, and you guys have just been fantastic to us. I got to hang out with y'all over Christmas. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we had the full uh, breadth of church experience uh, over the Christmas holidays. Christmas Eve, Eve, uh, we were able to go to my home church, uh, First Baptist Middleburg, and, and worship with them. Uh, we worshiped with y'all on Christmas, uh, uh, Christmas Eve. Uh, we were here for two services, and then we got to uh, go to Fruit Cove Baptist on Christmas Day. Uh, and so we have just been making the tour around, uh, around the Jacksonville area doing church over, over the holidays, and it's been fantastic. I hope you had a wonderful holiday, uh, but it's back to business. Uh, when we did a sermon calendaring meeting uh, several months ago, we were uh, having the conversation about where we wanted to go and kind of what this year was going to look like. Uh, we finished out the sermon calendar uh, that was planned uh, early in 2022. Uh, that was what we finished out um, last year. And so when we were having the conversations, they really revolved around a church that's in transition uh, and, and what that looks like and, uh, and how can we prepare you for what God has for you in 2023. And, and hopefully at some point, and look, we don't know what God's timing looks like, uh, but, but we do know that, that God has already begun to stir in the heart uh, of the man that he is called to be your next pastor. Uh, and so, uh, so um, you know, the search committee is diligently working with Vanderblom and services uh, to, uh, to work to find uh, that, uh, that individual. And so I would encourage you to continue to pray for your search committee uh, as they, are, are, uh, they have a daunting task in a world of 8 billion people trying to find the one man that God has planned to, to be the shepherd for this church. Be in prayer for them as, uh, as they, they move forward. Um, all right, so if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to go to Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Uh, one of my favorite books in, in all of scripture. I normally say that when I begin teaching through a book. Uh, all 66 are my favorite, and I, and I lie to you every time and tell you it's my favorite uh, when, when we start a new one. But really, when I'm preaching through it, it really is my favorite. And so, uh, so I'm excited about, uh, about Nehemiah. This is a great story. It's a narrative story. Um, it tells a little bit of history. We're going to get into some of the history today as we prepare for where we're, we're headed. Uh, I need to give you a little bit of historical context so you understand where we've come from. Uh, in the story, we're, we're jumping into the middle of, of one story that takes up two, uh, uh, two books of the Bible. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are essentially the same story. The prophet Ezra comes to God's people, warning them of, of judgment, all the things that are going to go down. Uh, God's people decide that they're going to turn uh, away from all of that, uh, and uh, they're going to walk their own way, as is pretty much the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the story of God's people. You know, God saying, this is what I want you to do. God's people saying, we don't really want to do that. And then God saying, fine, we're going to let you fall into judgment. And they fall into judgment and, and bad things happen. Um, Allie and I, uh, we love, and I don't know about you, uh, but, but we love to, we, we've kind of got to the point in our marriage. Uh, we've been together um, 17 years and uh, we've been married for 17 years, been together for 22. Uh, and, uh, but one thing that, that we've kind of gotten out of is giving each other like tangible gifts, like, uh, like, cause her love language isn't really gifts. And I enjoy, you know, we enjoy doing things together. And so, um, we give each other experiences for birthdays and anniversaries and Christmas and things like that. Uh, and so for Christmas this year, we gave each other a, a trip to Nashville. We're going next weekend. Uh, we're going to Nashville. It's going to be kind of a quick up and back. Um, we're going to, uh, we're going to go see a Broadway musical uh, up in Nashville, one of our favorites, Les Miserables. Uh, and so uh, we've seen it probably 
25 or 30 times uh, since we've been together. It's our favorite. But, but we love Broadway musicals. We love uh, Phantom of the Opera. We love Wicked, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, um, our favorite being Les Miserables. And so we're going to be going up there uh, and, and, and spending, spending time going to see it, having dinner and things like that. Um, we love the story. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. We love it for different reasons. Allie loves the love story. All right, so she loves, you know, the, the whole, like, love aspect and the touchy-feely stuff. That's not really my gig. I'm a boy. That's not really my gig. And so, um, but I love the humanity. I love uh, the, uh, the, the human peace. I love The story of Les Miserables is a story of a guy that makes a mistake and just can't seem to get things right. He always seems to be a day late and a dollar short. He's always constantly trying to atone for his, uh, for his, his transgressions. And things, and, is, and spends his life after he gets out of jail. There's a there's a bishop in a church uh, that shows him mercy, and and the guy's name is Jean Valjean. He winds up spending the rest of his life trying to atone for the mercy that the the, the bishop showed him, and try to be uh, a better man. And so, um, so I love the 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 humanity, the the human piece. Allie just loves it when uh, when 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 Marius and Cosette get together, and then you have Eponine on the side who wants to be with Marius. I mean, if you know the story, you know it. Um, so. So we go, and she enjoys her part. I enjoy my part. Uh, and when we walk out, we talk about what a great show it was. And we don't really talk about why we, we enjoyed it, because we already know. Um, the story of creation is the story of God writing a story. It's a narrative. God, in, in creation, God wanted to create someone that would worship him that he could have fellowship with, closeness to. And so, so I, I want you to think about creation like a Broadway musical, all right? I mean, we're not dancing, we're not singing, but I want you to think, think of creation much like that, okay? And so think about it when you would walk into a theater, and maybe this room is, is something like that, but as you walk into a theater, um, there are certain things that you notice. When you walk in the back doors, you look and, and you see all of the seats that are, in, that are in the theater. You see the box seats that go up. You have, uh, you know, you have the mezzanine and you have the orchestra pit and you have, you have all the seats that are around and they're all focused. But in those seats, in creation, the heavenly hosts at creation were all party to what God was, the story that God was writing. And then on the stage, you have the earth. You have, you, you, the earth is kind of representative of a stage and, and God is writing the story and everything that happens in the story that God's writing happens on the stage, whether a part of the stage was, was the Garden of Eden in the fall or maybe, maybe uh, Canaan and the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, the creation of his people, uh, Israel, or maybe even uh, uh, when, when, uh, when uh, um, the Israelites would rebel and, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he ransacks Jerusalem and takes his God's people to be in, uh, in captivity. And, and your notes may say, uh, because I had the Exodus on the brain when I was writing this, and, uh, and, and I put that they went into captivity in, in, in Babylon for 40 years. That's not true. They went in, in captivity for 70 years. I had the wrong number on the brain, so you may want to correct that if you're following along online with the notes. But you know, you had the story of, of, of Jerusalem and 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 within you know the, the, the area of Jerusalem that's on the stage, you have Golgotha right outside the city walls. And you have Jesus and 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 he comes on the scene and he winds up living this perfect life and, and all this whole narrative is being acted out, and, and this whole story was meant to start 
as a people for who, who God could have fellowship with, that would worship him, that would spend all of eternity in, in fellowship with him. And we know the brokenness of the garden, the sin that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And then on the stage, you see this narrative beginning to play out of preparation for Messiah who was going to come, who was going to redeem God's people, put them back into full fellowship with God. The story of Nehemiah begins in the, in the book of the minor prophet Ezra. God's people have been rebellious against him. And God, the way God does, he allows them to fall into ruin. And he used wicked king Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come in and they ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, enslaved the Israelites, took them to Babylon, which is kind of modern day Iraq and kept them there for seven decades. An entire generation dies off. And so finally, when the remnant is released by King Artaxerxes, and they're allowed to return home, they, they find, what they find is the walls of Jerusalem are still in disrepair. Nobody had come in and fixed it. They just, for 70 years, they just were able to sit there and so God's people come, come back and the Israelites come in and the families that are left go back to what was left of their homes and they begin to, um, they begin to repair the walls. But you know, some of the people that had moved in during the time, the Samaritans had kind of moved in during the time and there were other pagans that were living outside of the walls of Jerusalem and they, 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 all, you know, they didn't like all the banging, all the clattering, all, the, you know, all the, the noise that was being made. They didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And so they complain to King Artaxerxes. And so King Artaxerxes puts a, a stop order on any rebuilding of the wall. It's important for us to understand why the walls of Jerusalem being re rebuilt are so important. Because the walls in that time frame, in that time period, the walls of a city protected them from being overrun again. And so as long as the walls were broken down, that they would continue to be conquered and conquered and conquered. And people would come in and would kill and would steal and destroy. The walls needed to be rebuilt. And so enter Nehemiah, who was cupbearer. He, this was a, he was an Israelite who, had, who during the captivity had become uh, had, had become, um, uh, had ascended, almost like Joseph uh, that, we, that we read about in Genesis. Uh, just, uh, just as Joseph um, was, was one of God's people that began to, to rise in the ranks of a pagan government, uh, Nehemiah ascends to a, a place called Cupbearer. And it's a, it's a, there's a certain closeness. Uh, Nehemiah, as cupbearer to the king, anytime the king would be fed a meal, I mean, think about it. Everybody wanted to be king. Like a lot of people wanted to be king. And the way that you did, you didn't get to vote somebody out of being king. If you wanted to be king and you wanted to take over, you had to kill the guy that was before you. And so the cupbearer would sample all of the wine that was given to the, to the, um, uh, to the king. And if the cupbearer didn't die, it must not have been poisoned. I'm not really that desperate for a full-time job, I'll be honest with you. But it, it is a place of closeness. A, a, this, the cupbearer would be someone who is a confidant, would always be next to the king, not in, in, in an official capacity, but, but not as a friend or a whatever. But you would, you would see that, that Nehemiah and, and uh, King Artaxerxes were never very far from each other. 
And so there were times that the king would open up and Nehemiah became something of a confidant for the king. They had a rapport with one another. And so what we find as we jump into today's passage, okay, I give you all that history and, and I summarized it. All right, all right, what I give you in all of that history is so you understand that when we jump into this story, the Israelites are still living in Jerusalem that is still ransacked. Nehemiah sees it and God is going to impress on Nehemiah a need to rebuild the walls. Even knowing that Nehemiah's boss, essentially the king, had placed that stop order. And God is still going to impress on Nehemiah the need to go back and to finish what had been started. And what happened in so many times, when, when the stop order had happened, people eventually just quit complaining. It's almost like your house. Think of it like your house, okay? Uh, if you find a spot on the, on the ceiling of your house and it doesn't get any bigger, like a water spot, and it doesn't get any bigger, you know, you walk by and you go, oh man, I hate that spot. Oh, I, should, I really should do something about it. And then you just walk by. There comes a day when you quit looking up at that spot and you just begin to live with it and kind of deal with it and move on. And that's where the Israelites had come to. They'd come to a place of complacency where they had quit fighting for the right to rebuild the walls and they were just going to live in the midst of the rubble and the, and the ruin. And so God is actively writing this story and Nehemiah is going to take center stage of it. And that leads us to our, our big idea for today. That God places his people in the right places to do the right things at the right times. God's going to place his people. And this is what a sovereign God does. God is writing this story and he's weaving you and me into the, the story that he is writing at, at, to do the right thing at the right time. And so let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read um, all of chapter 1, which is 11 verses. Let's read it together. We're going to come back in the time that we have. We're going to unpack. That's a, it's a, lot, of, it's a lot of history. All right. He says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Uh, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers. Anybody want to come up here and read this? This is why we don't do Old Testament more than we do. Nobody wants to read the names. Okay. Um, it's, uh, in my 20th years, I was in, the, in uh, Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from uh, Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If you're comfortable uh, writing in your Bible, uh, underline that phrase. I think uh, he says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit when we get to it. He says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. A couple things I want us to, to pull out of this passage as we look at how the Lord is going to move in his people to continue his work, even in times of uncertainty and of transition. We see this, number one, that God plays, when God moves, right? when God does something big, when God is getting ready to do something miraculous, God, has, he creates within his people a passion. He creates a passion inside his people. We see that Nehemiah was, was the cupbearer. He was, he was close to the king, a trusted confidant. Even though he was not of them, he was among them and had, had created a certain rapport with them. Look at verse 3. We see that, that uh, when Nehemiah hears of, of all that's going on, it wells something up within him. He, he said that they had said to him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And so what happens here is that Nehemiah hears the plight of his people. He sees that there's a job to be done, to restore, to protect his people. And as God is prepping to move, he ignites a passion within one of his people to do his work. Now, sometimes that passion manifests in in, in putting the hand to the plow. And look, there comes a point, and I don't want us to, to over or undersell the power of prayer. Right? I think so often, and I was in a church one time uh, when, when we were hearing about, uh, we were hear, hearing a story about, about people that were in our town who were of a, a different nationality. Uh, and, um, and we had the, the church I was in had the, had the ability and had the financial resources to help these people. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and there was a lady who was sitting over the sign when we hear the, the, the prayer or we hear the plight of what was going on in this particular uh, nationality that had settled in our town. Uh, she, she stands up, she goes, well, I think we need to pray for them. I was like, well, cool, let's pray for them. So we prayed for them. And then I said, now, how can we tangibly help them? And she raised her hand and she said, Pastor, we've already prayed for them. What more do you want? Well, something. But I don't want us to, to undersell the power of prayer. There has never been a movement of God that was not preceded first by the passionate prayers of God's people. And so in, in this time, and, and you may be, be wondering, uh, you, know, you know, why don't we have a pastor yet? It's been six months. Like, like why, 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 what do we got you for? Like, 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 why can't we, you know, there's 8 billion people. Why don't we just go hire somebody? Because that would be a train wreck. Have you prayed for your pastor search committee today? Have you prayed for the next man who's going to stand on this stage and preach this gospel to you for the next, hopefully, 25, 30 years? Have you spent time praying for his family? Have you asked God 
what his will is, what his desire is? Or are you content to sit in the back and grumble in the corners? Before any movement of God, there must be the passionate prayers of his people. And I ask you to to underline that that phrase in verse 4. He says, as soon soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Church, let me tell you something. In the times of uncertainty, when when we're given bad information or we're getting a, a bad diagnosis, there's nothing wrong with sitting down and weeping and mourning, grieving over what we've heard. But look at what he said. He said, even after that, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. How long do we see? Well, well, Scripture tells us without telling us. In verse 1, it said, now, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. Now, the month of Kislev is roughly November in the, on the Jewish calendar. We also see that, that later uh, in the passage, we see that, that we've come to, when, when things begin to, to, to move along, it's in the month of Nisan, which is roughly March. So roughly four months take place from the time that Nehemiah has the conversation with the, the people regarding the Israelites to when he's going to approach King Artaxerxes. So what we see is that, that Nehemiah saw the need and he, he wanted more than anything. He grieved over the fact that the walls were still broken down, that his people were, were still vulnerable to attack, that they weren't safe. He wanted to see the walls rebuilt, but he, he waited. He prayed. He fasted. And he waited for the right opportunity to speak with, with the king. Can I be honest with you this morning? I go back to that, I want to quote a, um, um, Allie's favorite movie, uh, which is The Prince's Bride. Uh, when Andre the Giant, when, when he, he says, I hate wait. I'm, I'm not good at waiting. I'm not a patient person. I, I want it now. Hey, can anybody identify, anybody testify to that this morning? Like, like I, the rest of y'all are lying. I know you are. You don't wait well either. I've seen you at traffic lights. I've seen you at the buffet line. I'm telling you, we don't wait well, do we? I've often found this. <laughs> when I actually submit to God and I wait and I pray, let me tell you, hardest prayer on, on the planet, church, is thy will be done. When I wait and pray and I ask God to open doors in his timing, it generally tends to work out pretty well. When I try to push the process along because I'm a control freak and nobody knows how to do it better than me, that's when I generally tend to muck it up. Alan Redpath once, once said this. He said that recognition of need must be followed by earnest and persistent waiting upon God. Until the overwhelming sense of world need becomes a specific burden in my soul for one particular piece of work which God would have me to do. That's a, that's a mouthful. So I want to break it down for you. 
When you see a need, what comes after it must be a prayer of thy will be done. And in that prayer time, that prayer becomes a burden on our souls that God will manifest in work when the time's right. Jesus showed us that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the, to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Let me ask you a question. What if I were to tell you, and I, this is not on the calendar, like I'm, I'm just, I'm spitballing here. What if I were to tell you that there would be a Sunday when you would walk into church and the only thing we would do for an hour is pray together. On a Sunday morning, maybe mix in a little music to break the tension, but I wouldn't get up and preach. We wouldn't have any announcements. Just coming together, the gathered body in corporate worship and just praying. Praying for the church, praying for our community, praying for the future in the unknown, whatever that looks like. Even in the times of waiting, like, like the one you're experiencing here at Fort Caroline, the Lord is still looking for laborers who will pray, but who will allow their passion for the gospel to get out so much that they'll get out of their seats and put their hands to the plow. When God moves, he creates a passion within his people, but he's also created a vision for his people. There's work to be done. How do, how do we know that? Well, number one, quite honestly, can we be honest with the, about the Israelites here since they're, you know, most, most, of, most of them are probably not in this room today? They're lazy. They got comfortable. They began, like I was talking about the spot on the ceiling, they began to look past the broken walls. They, they went about their lives just being okay, having to walk over the rubble to get to Publix or wherever they were going on a given day. They became okay with just okay. They became fine with just fine. And friend, can I tell you something? Laziness is sinful. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, once said that good can become the enemy of great. When we become content in mediocrity, we rarely strive to do the hard things the Lord asks us to do for his glory. And that can happen within a church transition as well. We can begin to use the excuse, well, we're just waiting for a pastor to get here before we do anything. We, we don't want to jump out ahead of the next pastor. Well, the problem is, with that argument, is that God is already stirring in the heart of your next pastor for the people here at Fort Caroline. He probably doesn't know your name. He probably doesn't know the church's name or what city it's in. But God has already begun to well up a desire for him, for you. And if he is stirring in the heart of your next pastor, wouldn't it be prudent for him to step into a church that's actually alive, that's working, that's busy being about the Great Commission? What better way to be busy about the gospel 
than seeking God's face for what would happen in, in this transition. God is creating a vision within his people. Look at verse 9. He says, but he said, well, let's go back to verse, end of verse 8. He says, you are unfaithful. I will scatter you amongst the people as God told to Moses. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God promised that the remnant who would be faithful, that would keep his commandments, that he would put them back together again, being one nation whole. And so this vision that God created for his people would be the, the, the foundation for Nehemiah. It's going to spur Nehemiah to create a plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God is already, church, listen to me, don't miss this. God is already building his church. He told Peter as much when they were standing at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. He says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, not on Peter, but on the rock of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God has a vision, church. That vision is the Great Commission. He is building a church. And you at Fort Caroline are a part of the story that he's writing. When he created, when he said these things, think about it. When Jesus said these words to, to the disciples outside of, of Pan's temple at Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago, he was thinking of Fort Caroline Baptist Church. That vision is not Fort Caroline Baptist Church. That vision is the church of which we are a small part here. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, John writes, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And talking about Jesus here, right? And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God has offered to bring salvation to the nations through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And church, the chief end of salvation is not the redemption of men. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? It's not, the, the end of salvation is not the redemption of men. The end of salvation is the glory of God. And in the glory of God, we find the redemption of men. Only God could write a story where he receives the glory from our brokenness. So what does that mean for us here? Today, it means that in the waiting, the vision hasn't changed. The Great Commission is still about the glory of God. It's still about the salvation of men. And as you wait for the next chapter of your church's history to transition from the future sense into the present tense, let's be about the gospel. God, when God moves, he creates a passion within his people. When God moves, he creates a vision for his people. But he also has created a drive through his people. It would have been easy for Nehemiah, sitting in the king's chambers in Babylon, to look at the plight of the Israelites and say, man, I sure do hate that for them. Gosh, I guess I got to pray for them. 
Okay, what are we having for dinner? Hopefully it's not poison. He could have just said, I'm just going to pray until somebody does something about that. But church, that's not what happened. Look at verse 11. Nehemiah's prayer to God, he says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Verse 11 shows us that Nehemiah became driven with the idea of fulfilling the vision that God had had given him. The vision was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to approach the king, which you just didn't do. That his people might be whole again. And he had to ask the question that everybody has to ask before they embark on something that is so big, only God could do it. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth it to take on all of these things that God wants you to do at Fort Caroline Baptist Church? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the energy? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the money? Nehemiah had a nice job. It was cushy. He had a nice place to live. They did architecture in such a way to where uh, in the Middle East where there was all of this hot, dry heat air that was flowing, they, they had architecture. They built palaces in such a way that they got airflow. It was like air conditioning. The man had air conditioning. There was no reason to leave it all, to go back to run down old Jerusalem. The rest of this book, the rest of this story, and our series over the next several weeks, we're going to see all the obstacles. All the obstacles that Nehemiah had to overcome to fulfill the vision that God had for him. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always fun. But we're going to see that the end was worth the journey. We're going to flesh that out over the next several weeks. And as we look at Nehemiah's story, I need you to filter it through the lens of Fort Caroline Baptist and how God is writing his story here. As we build for next, we have the opportunity to watch the Lord do some amazing things. Even before your next pastor steps on the stage. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you don't know what it means to be a part of the local church. Can I tell you something before we close down today? Jesus Christ loved you so much that he left the splendor of heaven where there was substantially better air conditioning than there is here. He came to a broken, beat up, run down world and died for a people that didn't give a rip about him. He died for you. And he wants more than anything in this world for you to be in full fellowship and a relationship with him. The only way you can do that is if you trust Jesus Christ with your life. Say no to the sinful, dumb stuff that you do every day and ask him to forgive you. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of redemption. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, Pastor Matt's going to be standing back in the back. There's going to be some other folks that are going to be back there as well. 
on your way out, stop by there. If you have questions about what it means to be a believer in Jesus, you've never made that, that's taken that step of faith. They can help you. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you have a question or a concern about membership at Fort Caroline. You want to be a part of the team. You've been a guest. But you want to be a part of the family here. We can help you with that. However the Lord is leading you today, would you be open and obedient as the Lord leads today? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you and we honor you. And we thank you for who you are, for what you're doing, how you're moving in us. God, I pray for this church, for the vision that you've given us to move forward together in this time of uncertainty and transition. Father, may we be about your business. May we be a people of prayer. May we be, may we be, may we be so burdened over the, the things that you're doing, the vision that you've cast for this church. That we're moved to fast and to seek your face and how we can be a part of the story that you're writing here. Father, be with us today if we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.